Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Just one quick announcement from the Brookings Podcast Network. Transcripts of all of our shows, intersections, 5 on 45, events, and this one are now available through our website. Starting in 2010 and 2011, popular uprisings spread throughout the Middle East and North Africa, threatening or deposing a number of authoritarian regimes in what became known as the Arab Spring. In only one case have we seen a democratic transition, however, and that is in Tunisia, where the spark that ignited the Arab Spring quite literally took place. Young Tunisians were at the forefront of this monumental change in their country and government, but two-thirds of them boycotted the 2014 elections, and today the level of youth participation in Tunisian politics is very low relative to many other countries, including Argentina, Estonia, South Africa, and the United States. To help us understand what this means for Tunisia and the wider region, I'm joined today by Sarah Yerkes. She is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former scholar with our Center for Middle East Policy here at Brookings. She is also a former member of the State Department's policy planning staff, where she focused on North Africa, and she has served as a foreign affairs officer in the Department's Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs. And she is the author of a new report from the Center for Middle East Policy titled, Where Have All the Revolutionaries Gone? Stay tuned in this episode for another edition of Wessel's Economic Update. Today, a focus on the prescription drug market. And now on with the interview. Sarah, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that title, Where Have All the Revolutionaries Gone? It reminds me of a song that was popularized by Van Halen, but written by the kinks from back in the 60s, Where Have All the Good Times Gone? Is that where it comes from? No, it actually, it does come from a song, which is a Paula Cole song, Where Have All the Cowboys Gone? I think it was popular in the 90s when I was in high school and, you know. Okay. Well, that's terrific. I'm still going to hear where have all the good times gone. <laughs> but let's actually focus on the substance of this report. Let's start with what the kind of the premise of the report is, you know, what the elevator version might be. Sure. So this project actually started when I was still at the State Department and I was working on Tunisia, looking at the outcome of the 2014 elections, which were the second parliamentary elections for that country, but really kind of the first real full free and fair presidential and parliamentary elections. And so given that, you'd kind of expect that it just had this revolution a few years ago. You'd expect to see the flooding of the political space, that people of all ages and all types would be coming out to vote in droves. And in reality, the reports that I kept hearing from people who were on the ground there at the time were that young people just were not voting. So that led me to a couple questions. First, is this real? Is it just anecdotal? Or does the data actually show that Tunisian youth are staying away from the polls? And second, if it is true, what does that mean for the health of Tunisia's democracy? So I led that into this research project. Let's go back in time to the context of this, which is the Arab Spring. Can you talk about Tunisia's role and Tunisian people's role in the beginning of the Arab Spring? Who were the revolutionaries? What were they trying to accomplish? Those kinds of questions. Sure. So Tunisia started the Arab Spring. I mean, they were the first country to have this sort of popular revolution. Began in December 2010. And it began mostly as an issue of economic injustice, that you had the literal spark, which was the self-immolation of this young man, 26-year-old Mohamed Bouazizi, who was a vegetable seller. He was experiencing all sorts of injustice and, and frustration and was so fed up by the end by what he felt was mistreatment by the government that he set himself on fire. This led to protests, and the protests spread all over the country and then eventually to Egypt and elsewhere. But I think what's important from the Tunisian case, and as we kind of track this transition over the next six and a half years at this point, is that it was really about economic issues. We tend to think of the Arab Spring as a democratic political revolution. And in the case of Tunisia, it did lead to political change. 
But in reality, the demands of the revolutionaries initially were much more about economic injustice, both about, you know, what they saw kind of as the hypocrisy of the regime that, you know, you had this massive wealth among the ruling family, but at the same time, you had just complete poverty. You also had this tremendous disparity of wealth between the coastal cities like Tunis and the interior region where the revolution started. So, you know, again, as we kind of look back and talk through this, I'm sure today, you really have to kind of pay attention to where were they before as far as the economy is concerned and where are they now? And then the political change is also tremendously important, but it's not really the main driver or the main demands of what the revolutionaries were looking for. And one of the other factors at the time was that there was an authoritarian regime that had been in power for decades, I think, that had followed another one. It was a very typical pattern that you Mm -hmm. see in that region. So did that revolution dislodge that regime? And if so, where is Tunisia now in terms of its government, its democracy? So, yeah, I mean, the main outcome that we can point to from the revolution was political change. And the Ben Ali regime was ousted. Ben Ali himself is in exile in Saudi Arabia. But it was replaced with a series of governments to the Tunisian transition, which is still ongoing. We're only, again, six and a half years out. But they went through, you know, a fairly typical sort of what we call pacted transition where they had different parties, different issues kind of come together and decide the future of the country. Today, in the political system, you have a constitution that was drafted with the assistance of civil society, with all sorts of groups involved. You've had free and fair, multiple sets now, free and fair elections. They have just set the date for their first ever elections for municipal government. That's going to be held actually December 17th, 2017, the end of this year, which will fall on the seventh anniversary of the start of the revolution, which is a highly symbolic measure for sure. So they're undergoing all of these political changes that where they are today is, I wouldn't say they're a full-fledged liberal democracy, but they're getting there. And, and politically, they seem to be on the right path. Economically, not so much. And again, as I said, the revolution you know came about because of economic injustice issues. Those things have actually gotten a lot worse over the past six years. They haven't improved. Youth unemployment, which was one of the big drivers of the revolution, has almost doubled. It's now above 40 percent. It was at about 20 percent before the revolution. So you're still seeing a lot of the economic challenges today. But the political system has definitely evolved and improved and is making its way towards full democracy. Well, as we dive into the heart of your research here, which is really all about Tunisian youth, specifically secular youth, Mm -hmm. if you will, to get the term right. Tell me about the composition of Tunisian youth relative to the overall Tunisian population. Sure. So I think, you know, what people don't always realize is so Tunisian youth make up 60% of the population. 60% of the population is under 35, which is... Remarkable. I mean, the whole Arab region experienced this youth bulge over the past several years. And Tunisia, the fact that they still have this large youth population means that youth matter. They matter in a way that they might not matter in the United States, for example. You know, there are other countries where youth play an important role and they're more active. But just the fact that they are so large is important. You know, they also tend to be engaged. You know, if you look at data on youth interest in politics, how much youth read newspapers or visit news sites online, how much they kind of pay attention to what's going on around them. Tunisian youth as a whole are very engaged in the public and in what's going on in their own country. You have this really interesting generational divide in Tunisia where the three generations, sort of the the oldest generation, which is the, the president right now, is 90 years old. So he's from the very old generation. Then you have sort of the middle generation and then the youth. They each came of age during a very different political time in Tunisian history. So this oldest generation, they were alive and were coming of age, I guess, you know, during the 
prior regime, the Bourguiba regime, which was Tunisia's first independent regime. So they experienced not democracy, but sort of an open political system. They they saw some sort of political contestation. Again, it wasn't free and fair, but they experienced a little bit of politics. The middle generation, the parents of the youth, had none of that. They really had their real adult lives during Ben Ali, which was highly repressive, closed system. There was no room for opposition. So they're completely turned off. They're more apathetic than their kids. They're more just sort of disengaged from everything. And then you have the young people who, for most of them, they were only alive during Ben Ali. I mean, he came to power before they were even born. So they've never experienced any sort of democracy, any sort of political opposition. They they didn't even teach civics in school. They didn't – political science is not allowed as a major. Now that's obviously changed. But so the fact that they're engaged, that they're trying to – that they first of all were able to accomplish a revolution is remarkable. But this huge – group of the population who's interested, who's, they're very well-versed in social media. They're trying to, you know, really change their country for the better. Well, that gets us, I think, into the heart of your research here. Tunisian youth are engaged in the politics of their country, Mm -hmm. but as you write, they're not engaged in formal politics or engaged in informal politics. Can you describe the difference between those two concepts? When I talk about formal politics, I'm really talking about voting, running for office, participating in joining a political party. Informal politics is more of like civil society. So joining an NGO, starting an NGO, attending a protest, signing a petition, attending some sort of meeting. And I decided to differentiate this between formal politics and informal politics rather than politics and civil society because the informal stuff matters. You know, it's not just that they have no political sway or that they have no ability to impact change. They do, but it's in this sort of informal mechanisms. So civil society plays a big role in Tunisia, as you document, Mm -hmm. whereas it didn't really in the previous Mm -hmm. regime. Can you describe quickly what civil society organizations are all about in the Tunisian context? The evolution of civil society during the past six years is remarkable. And I think, you know, some of the Tunisian organizations, what they do best, I think, is what we can kind of call a watchdog role, that they've taken on this task of keeping the government honest. So you have some organizations that frankly put American civil society organizations to shame. I've never seen anything like this anywhere else in the world where they're in parliament, they're tweeting, they're documenting, they're keeping track of, they have websites that track what all the different members of parliament do and say, it's amazing. So that the average Tunisian citizen, if they choose to, can has a place to go, can kind of see what's going on. They're also very good. They are great at organizing, which, again, given the revolution, is not surprising that this is a skill that they've developed. So, you know, if a law is up they're not happy with, they are great at getting protests going, at getting kind of the public to come out and express their dissatisfaction. The one thing that the paper discusses that they're not great at, though, is building a bridge with government. And, you know, scholars of liberal democracy or of democratic transitions will tell you that in order for a transition to be successful, you really have to build a bridge. You have to serve as the watchdog role, but you also have to serve this other role, which is an interest aggregator. That civil society takes kind of the wants and needs of the public and translates that to government. And you need to have this connection. And what I found in the paper that I think is troubling is that you're seeing more and more of a divide between civil society and government rather than bridge building. You write in the paper that Tunisia is experiencing a dangerous imbalance between civil society and politics, formal politics. Why would that be a dangerous imbalance? There's a couple of reasons. I mean, one of the things, as I said, it's driving this wedge between civil society and government. So what you're seeing is that rather than 
building up a political opposition where you might have one party in power and then another power that's in the opposition and they're kind of fighting out these battles in the government arena, civil society is kind of playing that opposition role. And this has to do with Tunisia's political history, with their consensus government history. So, you know, on the one hand, they've had this consensus model that's actually saved the democratic transition at multiple points. And it's remarkable. It's very impressive that the parties were willing to put the country first above their own political needs. However, the downside of that is that, again, you don't have a political opposition. So there's no winners. There's no losers. And instead, you have civil society and government clashing all the time. The other reason that I think that this is harmful or this is dangerous is that, you know, one of the consequences of young people in particular choosing civil society over politics is that by disconnecting themselves from the formal system, there's a couple of different kind of second and third order effects that can come of this. And and one is, you know, this rise in protest activity, which we see all the time, that the young people in particular seem to believe that the best way to accomplish their goals is through protests, is outside the system. So they're not using government. And then it's, you know, vicious cycle. Government isn't using them. They're not relying on them. You know, you also see just large numbers of kind of negative consequence of youth deciding to immigrate. So you have those 18 to 24, more than half of them say that they want to leave Tunisia. That doesn't mean they're actually doing that, but the desire to emigrate is there because they don't see themselves as connected to their government. And then the third aspect of this, which is the most dangerous, is that Tunisia remains one of the largest contributors of foreign fighters to ISIS of anywhere in the world. So these are all, you know, the impact of people who don't feel like their government or the formal system is there for them or that's not the answer to them or choosing these other paths that are a lot more dangerous. We'll take a short break here from the interview to get David Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel and this is my economic update. Americans spend roughly $1 billion every day on prescription drugs more per capita than any other country by far. Pharmaceuticals represent a growing share of the country's health spending, both because amazing new and often very costly drugs are emerging from the lab and because prices of many drugs are rising much faster than other prices. Federal government experts estimate that prescription drug spending will grow an average of 6.3% a year over the next decade. That's faster than overall health spending is going up. Highly publicized cases of very expensive new drugs, as well as sharp price increases for some older drugs, have drawn widespread attention and criticism from the public, members of Congress, even President Trump. And because the U.S. government pays 43% of the retail prescription drug tab, rising spending on drugs is putting pressure on the federal budget. It's also forcing up health insurance premiums. Private insurers pay another 40% of the cost of prescription drugs. Now, we want to give pharmaceutical companies financial incentives to innovate and produce breakthrough drugs. That's why the government grants them a patent that prevents anyone from competing with them for a set number of years. And the Food and Drug Administration sometimes shields makers of brand-name drugs from competition from generics even after the patent expires. On average, new brand-name drugs have 13 years or so before a generic competitor is allowed to enter the market. But it's possible to go too far in this direction. If drug companies can charge whatever they can get away with, more than needed to get them working away in their labs, their shareholders and executives will get rich, and the rest of us will have to pay. Fiona Scott Morton, she's an economist at Yale, sees a pretty stark choice— Either we find a way to encourage more competition in the prescription drug market, or the government is going to end up regulating the price, 
as is the case in many other countries. She'd like to try spurring competition first. To quote her, when manufacturers can earn high profits by lobbying for regulations that weaken competition or by developing mechanisms to sidestep competition, the system no longer incentivizes the invention of valuable drugs. Rather, it incentivizes firms to locate regulatory niches where they are safe from competition on the merits with their rivals, end quote. And that second place is where we seem to be today. Now, competition won't solve every problem. It's very hard to put the right price on a breakthrough drug that truly has no competition but has great value to people. But that's not the case with a lot of drugs. Speeding the entry of generics into the market, finding better ways to encourage consumers and employers and insurers to choose treatments that are efficacious but cheaper would help. Generics are a powerful force in parts of the drug market, but not in the new and fast-growing market for genetically engineered drugs known as biologics. And that, Scott Morton says, is a big problem. So we at the Hutchins Center at Brookings have recruited a few experts, Scott Morton among them, to offer some practical ideas for pricing new drugs and for slowing the increase in prices of old ones without compromising the health of Americans or discouraging drug company research. We'll discuss these ideas here at Brookings on the morning of May 2nd. Join us in person or online. And now back to my interview with Sarah Yerkes. You referenced the 2014 election in Tunisia a few minutes ago, and you have this really striking chart in the paper that shows the percentage of youth under 30 across lots of countries who say they always vote in national elections. And for Tunisia, it's 12.7%. And it is the lowest across about 20 or so countries. The United States is 35.6%. The percent of youth under 30 say they always vote in national elections. Uruguay is 73%. Romania is 55%. Taiwan, 48.6%. Ghana is 57.7% of youth always vote in national elections. The next closest country to Tunisia on this chart appears to be Estonia, where 26.9% of youth Mm -hmm. under 30 say they always participate in national elections, always vote. Why do Tunisian youth not vote in national elections after having gone through the revolution that they went through? Right. It's striking and it's surprising. You know, you wouldn't expect Tunisia to be the lowest, but you I would think you would almost expect it to be one of the highest because they went through this election. And so in the research, I found four explanations for the lack of participation. One is disillusionment, which I've already alluded to, which is that – so first of all, as I mentioned, the economy is faring worse than it was before. The revolutionaries in particular, the you know, non-Islamist youth, are frustrated because they in some cases saw their friends give their lives or they gave their time – their strength to this movement. And what they've gotten from it is a worse economic situation. And and the young people have fared worse than other generations have. So they believe that the way that they succeed is through protests, is through civil society. The second reason is a generational divide, which I also alluded to a little bit, but it's both a reality and a perception. So 
the young people believe or and perceive that the older generation doesn't care about them, that they treat them with disrespect, that they're sort of like a prop. And the older generation sees the young people as inexperienced, as sort of kids, you know, These kids went to the streets, great, but they don't know how to actually run the country. And so one thing, you know, when I'm speaking to some Tunisian activists and people who work a lot with youth groups, what they said is that, you know, politicians will campaign on youth issues, that youth resonates with society, young and old. And so they'll come out and they'll make all these promises and then they won't deliver on them. And part of the reason they don't deliver is because youth don't vote. So if they were to vote, they would probably get better results. But, you know, the bottom line is that the young people think that they're being used and abused by the older generations. And then the third explanation is a lack of organization, that, you know, in order to organize revolution, which is an incredible feat, I don't mean to belittle that at all, but that's not the same skill set as running for office, as participating in politics. I mean, one of the things that was told to me over and over again is this idea of compromise, that revolutions are black and white. You're revolting against something. You're, you know, It's not easy or straightforward, but it's a kind of clear demand. Politics is about consensus and compromise, and a lot of the activists weren't willing or interested in making those sort of compromises. And then finally, the explanation that I felt is the most relevant is what I call the siren call of civil society, which is that civil society is a better avenue for people, that it's, first of all, easier entree. So, you know, joining a political party, partially because of this generational divide, the young people are likely to be at the bottom of the list. It's hard to to kind of make headway in a party, whereas you can just go out and start an NGO. And they have a very permissive civil society environment. It's great. So not only do you, you can have an office, you can maybe even have some staff, you can get some American funding or European funding, and um, your physical space is much better. The parliamentarians don't have offices within the parliament building, which is crazy. They don't have staff. And parliamentarians, young and old, told me they don't feel like they're respected. And civil society also, you know, it offers, again, this sort of like quick win. So you can you can organize a process, you can do something, whereas they're not seeing wins coming out of the government. And they don't feel like that's really the best path for them. So is this a problem in the eyes of the Tunisian government? Is this something that the president, who's 91 years old, and in his minister's want to do something about or is it something that the Tunisian parliament cares about? Yeah, so the Tunisian government is certainly aware of the youth participation problem and one of the avenues that they're going through right now. I mentioned the municipal elections. So when I had some interviews with the Tunisian Ministry of Youth and Sport last summer and I was doing the research for this paper, I mean it was clear that they are targeting the municipal elections as the way to bring youth back into politics. Which I think is a good thing. I think, you know, it's easier for young people for anyone to run for local office than it is for national offices. It's a much smaller game. But they're also kind of banking on this and I think they're a little bit naive to think that young people are going to flock either to the polls or to be running for office in the municipal elections. The young people I interviewed said, if we're not voting in national elections, why do we vote in municipal elections? It's not any different. The other thing that they've done, which is really interesting, is they have a youth quota of sorts. It's not a traditional quota. So they have within the party lists, in order to get full government funding, you have to have Out of every four people, you have to have one youth member. So it's not a requirement. They also have a gender quota, which is a gender parity law where every other person on the list has to be male, female, male, female, or female, male, female, male. That has allowed Tunisia to have one of the most, if not the most, representative governments as far as gender, 
which is fabulous. So that clearly the quota system can work for them. But the way they've done the youth quota, it's not required. It's every four people. Many of the parties are small enough. They don't even get four people. So they'll put the youth as the last person. And the youth have seen right through that. And I had a couple people tell me that they feel like this is lip service, that it's the government kind of checking the box. And the other issue, I mean, going back to kind of this bridge between civil society and government, the other thing the government has done, which again, I think is well-intentioned, but has sort of backfired, is they have required that government engage with civil society. So when they're considering a law or they're you know, putting forward a new initiative, they have these meetings with civil society. And I think it's, it's great that they realize this is important and they've, they've come to you know, make this part of their regular business. But the youth and the NGOs perceive this as another box-checking exercise that, okay, the, you know, the minister met with me or met with all of uh, 10 NGOs at once for one hour and then he was done and he didn't take what we had to say into consideration. And, you know, so it's – I think, again, they're still transitioning. They are not fully there yet, but they're working on it and they're trying to make some steps. I'm just not sure they're, they've quite figured out the right way to do it. I'm sitting here thinking about the Brookings outlook for the next, you know, so many years and that one of the watchwords is governance. Mm, and this mm-hmm. paper is so much at the intersection of governance and the process and the mechanics mm-hmm. and the actual real life experience of people. It's just a it's just a kind of a classic Brookings mm-hmm. approach. That's just an aside. <laughs> so something I probably should have followed up on a little bit earlier is you make a distinction between Islamist youth and mm-hmm. non Islamist mm-hmm. youth. And I think that's important also in the larger context mm-hmm. of where Tunisian politics are today, maybe Mm -hmm. even in the wider Middle Mm -hmm. East, North Africa region. Mm -hmm. So the paper was focused mostly on non-Islamist youth. So I didn't do as much research into the Islamist youth. But one of the things that I found when I was looking at kind of how the political parties deal with this issue, with the issue of youth, is that the Islamist party, Nahta, does a far better job than the non-Islamist parties at recognizing the quality of youth and kind of trying to bring youth into the party. They have some very high-profile members who are young people, and they've tried to elevate them. And I don't think it's all lip service. I think they really believe that in order for the party to succeed in the long run, they need to have youth voices. So they're tackling this much better than the non-Islamist parties. And another thing that's kind of challenging to to youth on the non-Islamist side is that there's just this there's not any sort of great place for them. So, I mean, it's a multi-party system, but you've basically had mostly a two-party kind of system for for the past couple of years where you have Nata and then you have Nida Tunis, which is the current party of the president. But that's just really a conglomeration of other little parties. They don't really have an ideology. So that's another thing that's turning youth away is that they don't really see – they're not motivated by this. They don't – they're not passionate. And, I, you know, I just keep coming back to, you know, I think if, if the young people – could form their own party, can they make up such a large percentage of the population that I think they could do really well? I mean, obviously, they are not all on the same page politically, and they would there wouldn't be just one youth party. But I do think some, you know, people could try to, if they wanted to, could try to compete against some of the current parties. I ask you to zoom out from Tunisia a mm-hmm. bit and try to address the question of what the international community, what the United States needs to understand about what is going on in Tunisia. Yeah, so I think the number one lesson is that the transition is still happening. We in the United States, and I think, you know, academics and government officials alike, we tend to sort of think of democratization as you have your election and then you're done. It's the fallacy of electoralism that elections do not democracy make. So I think we need to understand that just because Tunisia has now had two successful elections, it doesn't mean they've transitioned to democracy. And there's actually, I was just watching a really interesting discussion between the Tunisian foreign minister who was here in Washington a few weeks ago and an American scholar, they were talking about Tunisia. And the American said, now Tunisia has completed its democratic transition and the 
Tunisian foreign minister said, no, we are not a democracy. We're not a democracy yet. And so I think the Tunisians get that more than we do in a sense. And so recognizing, first of all, that there's a lot of work to be done and the Tunisians get that and that the international community has a role to play, that one of the problems with Tunisia, it's a small country. It's a country from the American perspective that had been largely neglected prior to the revolution. So we've now, over the past six years, set up pretty good funding streams, good assistance programs. But frankly, I mean, given all the threats to foreign aid under the Trump administration, Tunisians are worried, as they should be, I think. And we need to figure out a a sustainable funding stream for them, a way for them to plan, have predictable assistance, which I think they finally thought they were getting until the proposed Trump budget cuts. So I don't know where they're going yet, but I think we need to fund security, which is important. We need to fund the economy, but we also need to fund democracy and democratic reform. And we kind of almost feel like that part's done and we've moved on, but that's not the case at all. It seems like if you look at Tunisia in the context of all the other Arab Spring countries, Libya, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, I know I'm missing about three or four, that Tunisia is, of all of them, as you point out, the one that is still on some kind of path into democracy. And that should be of great interest to not only the U.S. government, but also to the American people. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, they've also proven to be a very strong partner, a very, you know, easy country to work with. They're, you know, welcoming of our assistance. They're welcoming of our engagement. I mean, we haven't really talked at all about the security situation, but they're also facing tremendous security threats that, you know, I mean, I mentioned the the number of ISIS fighters, but they also are sandwiched between Libya, which is an enduring civil war that has become at times a safe haven for ISIS. And then on the other side, you have Algeria, which the Mount Shambi region of Tunisian Algeria, the Tunisian-Algerian border also is home to like pots of terrorism. And so Tunisia faces real threats that I think you know are important to our own national security interests as well. So at the end of the paper, you have a series of policy recommendations. And I wonder if you might just either elaborate on some that you've already mentioned or discuss another one or two that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Sure. So I think there's a lot that we can be doing and a lot that the Tunisian government can be doing. And a big thing is sort of just building trust between civil society and government. One of the things that I think would be really helpful, because as I mentioned, you know, there's a national security angle to this. There's definitely an economic angle and a political angle. So what I would love to see is for the Tunisian government to develop some sort of cross government youth strategy, whole of government youth strategy, where they bring in representatives from each of the relevant ministries, but also civil society. And you have government and civil society at the table together, developing a strategy for how you're going to address youth issues and recognizing that it's not just about, you know, paying them lip service, but you really need to focus on bringing them in. And the final thing, I guess, is providing just physical resources for government, making government a more attractive place. You know, I think They have a very bloated bureaucracy, so I don't want to advocate for expanding the ranks, but almost like shifting government service right now is sort of viewed as a job where you go and, you know, you get a salary and and your benefits and you're kind of set for life. Change that to being like this is something that you strive for that, you know, attract the best and the brightest of the young people into important positions. You know, give them computers, give them – give parliamentarians office, give them, you know, staff, things like that that may seem kind of – basic, but I think actually could have a really strong impact on Tunisia in the long run. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Uh, You can learn more about Sarah Yerkes and her research at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace's website, and also find her report, Where Have All the Revolutionaries Gone?, on our website, brookings.edu.
Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And our intern is Kelly Russo. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>